people of Adland. Do you know how many listeners you can reach by advertising on a Muddy Knees Media podcast? Loads! Every single episode of Galazzo alone is listened to by nearly 100,000 of those hard-to-reach 25 to 44-year-old men. But we do plenty more shows than that now. We've got The Offside Rule with Kate Borsay, Lindsay Hooper and Hayley McQueen. We've got The Offside Rule WSL Edition, the UK's premier women's football podcast. We've got Series Linked, a podcast that's dripping with celebrities. And then there's the rest of the Totally Football Network, which includes the very lovely thetotallyfootballshow.com. If you'd like to talk about advertising with Muddy Knees Media, drop us a line on sales at muddykneesmedia.com. That's sales at muddykneesmedia.com. And listeners, don't keep the show to yourself. Leave us a review, rate us, share it with your friends, and subscribe wherever you listen to the rest of your podcasts and never miss an episode. So today, charting how one small kid from a tiny town in Sardinia became a bona fide Serie A superstar and then did quite well at Chelsea. The goals, the grins, the incredible wins. It's a golazzo on Zola and, if you will, golazzola. Golazzo! Hello, everybody. Welcome to this golazzo, one of a new series of six specials on the golden years of the Italian game today covering Zola Z-O-L-A Zola and here with us today on our Zola panel we've got Gabriele Marcotti and James Horncastle lovely to see you both good to be back James Gab you must have spent loads of great times with Gianfranco I have I've had the privilege of hanging out with him on uh, on multiple occasions and so I'm I'm looking forward to this it's funny because there's a public image of Zola. There's obviously the, 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 the Zola that's a phenomenal footballer. I remember once I had coffee with him and, and a friend who's way into sort of analytics and nerdiness and, 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 and stuff like that in, in football. And Zola got on with this guy like a house on fire. And it was funny because there, there's a book that all these like sort of clever people read. It's by a guy named Daniel Kahneman about thinking fast and thinking slow. And James is nodding very no- knowingly here because I'm sure <laughs> he's read it. you know this book? Yeah. Thinking fast and slow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And sure enough, Zola whips out his iPad and it's like, or, or, his, um, or his Kindle even though it was an iPad actually. And there it is. Like he'd been reading it at the same time. So, and uh, a friend of mine sort of, sort of said like, wow, it's like he's a really intelligent, nerdy, introspective guy trapped in the body of a professional athlete. And, right. um, and Which it was is funny. exactly the opposite of me. That I have the mind of an athlete trapped in the body of a... <laughs> of a nerd. <laughs> <Never> <laughs> know. What a shame. Your words, not mine. Okay, well, we, we all know the public image of Zola, the Chelsea, all that business. With this edition of Golazzo, the aim is to go back to the roots, I think. There's going to be a little bit of Maradona, probably some ice cream, a little light kidnapping as well. And lots of this. Here's Zola! Wonderful! Oh, goodness me, you couldn't write that. Ah, Sardinia, where on the 5th of July, 1966, little Gianfranco Zola was born in Oliena, 
which is on the, the slopes of Supermonte, a lovely part of Sardinia, actually. It's uh, on the fringe of the, the park of Genargentu. I don't know if you've, you've ever had the, 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 the chance to go there. Quite an isolated rural spot. Yeah, and it, it, it's about 10 miles away, about a 20-minute drive from this place called Orgosolo, which in sort of the, the, the history of Italy has a certain, certain significance because Sardinians, especially in inland, have a reputation generally of being you know, very polite people but kind of introverted, do their own thing. There was a big movement for Sardinian autonomy. And Orgosolo was kind of the, the base of this. And back in the years when the idea of regions being more autonomous wasn't that accepted in Italy and they wanted everything to be centralized and feel Italian, Orgosolo, it was this little independence movement and there was kind of this lawless area. And to this day, I remember, in fact, it was two years ago, we drove by there and you're in this little road and then all of a sudden in in the middle of the in, in the middle of the road somebody had put down like a log with like nails sticking out of it kind of like they wanted you to stop and it was funny unfortunately um the rest of my family had no clue what that was or what it meant and i just kind of and i'm sorry if the people from the rental agency are listening i just kind of accelerated over the log oh. and i there's an awful sound and you know mrs m was like what the hell are you doing um but back in the day supposedly mm. Mm. this is where they would sort of they, they put the stuff in the road and then they would shake you down for money but and i say this to say that italy as a country probably is is often people think of sardinia as part of italy people in sardinia refer to italy as the continent and in many parts especially the the poorer parts of sardinia inland there is a sense of italy almost as being almost like an occupying force, force. And I just remember going through there and having, you know, read about Orgosolo and the bandits there. I was like, oh. Did you not puncture when you made this maneuver? We did not because I, I managed to miss, I managed to miss the tires. I, at that stage, I was thinking like, all right, if I do get a puncture, screw it. It's not my car. I'm going to drive another 200 miles to Cagliari with the, uh, <laughs> the <laughs> to the Hertz. There are no gun-toting okay. bandits. But no, there was nobody really around and it was right. fine. And it is in, um, in this background that young John... <laughs> Gianfranco Zola grows up, signs papers with his local club, Nuorezi. In 86, uh, when he's 20, he moves to Torres in Sassari, to the north in Sardinia, which is essentially a satellite squad run by a man with a key role at a big mainland club. Whose name, James? <laughs> You're talking about Luciano Moggi. Him again. <laughs> No, but you said... He's like Zelig, isn't he, on this podcast? <laughs> I'd love to know how many podcasts have we had where we haven't mentioned that guy's name. Mm. But you mentioned his age, James. He was 20 when he moved to Torres. And Torres are a team in the third division. And yeah, nowadays, we're used to players who have the talent of Zola being discovered much earlier and getting a chance to play top-flight football for a big club sooner and instead yeah he he didn't move to napoli until what he was 22 23 23, 23. So and he 20... went straight from city c to city a yeah he was 23 and as you say he makes the leap from the third division to playing alongside the greatest footballer in the world diego maradona who the legend has it first says when he sees gianfranco zola finally they've signed someone even shorter than me well, he would then grow three centimetres taller than Diego Maradona, I'm led to believe. Is that right? Yeah. In the course of... Well, I mean, the, 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 the story goes that um, Moji signed Zola and uh, is it Massimo Cripa at the same time. And uh, Felaino kind of took one look at 
uh, Zola and was just like, I'm not presenting him to the media. He looks like he's well, he's a midget and he's not going to amount to much and he's from a third division team. You know, what, what can we expect? So I'll, I'll do the Creeper press conference. You do the Zola press conference. And, you know, of course, Modji takes that as a real kind of, see, I've got a great eye for talent and Zola turned out to be a fantastic signing for him. I mean, the, the whole thing, what you mentioned about, you know, the fact that he only made it to Serie A when he was, when he was older, a lot of people have asked about this. And the story that you get from sort of the, the, the Modji angle and like clubs just says, well, you know, he was even smaller and, you know, we weren't sure if physically he could handle it and whatever. And they kind of make it seem as if he grew. But, you know, it's not like he started growing when he was 19, 20 years old. And, yeah. you know, it, it, you know, and if you talk to Zola, he was basically stopped growing like most normal people when he was sort of 17 or 18 years old. He was quite thin. Yeah, but, you know. So were other people. I mean, Jovinko had a whole career out of it. So I think it was more of the fact that a lot of Italian clubs simply didn't scout in Sardinia. And part of the reason they didn't scout in Sardinia was also because there were certain prejudices to do with Sardinians. And did they all get homesick when they left the island? They're all jockeys. Well, yeah. <laughs> They're all jockeys. Could they eat with a knife and fork? All these like pretty nasty prejudices, right. which... Again, speaking in very broad stereotypes, right. most people think of Italians as being generally extroverted. Right. But Sardinians are seen as being generally very introverted. Right. I mean, one of the big things, even geographically, is most islands, they build harbors and port towns where people go fishing and stuff like that. You see that here in this lovely scepter dial, but it's like this most all over the world. If you go to Sardinia, two things strike you. One is that most towns are actually built inland. Um, I mean, they might have spread out, and, and obviously now they have ports and tourism and stuff like that, but the hub of the town is still very much inland, unlike, you know, compared to Liverpool and the docks, for example. Mm. The other thing is, Sardinia has wonderful food, but fish isn't a Sardinian staple at all, which is very odd when you're in an island, and part of that was that they didn't actually like going out fishing because they might bump into somebody else. They were they might being invaded. invaded, basically. And they were often being invaded. Right. And that's why, like, most of the of, of the famous Sardinian uh, fishermen or, or beaches mm. are actually, one of the most famous is called the um, Cala Mariuolo. Okay. Uh, Mariuolo is a Neapolitan term, which sort of means scoundrel. And it's because fishermen came from Ponza and from Naples and kind of said, hey, look, there's nobody here. Because the Sardinians, when they'd see them come, would all go and hide in the forest. Mm. And they kind of set up shop there. Well, let's talk about a Sardinian who went the other way and conquered Napoli then, Gianfranco Zola. So he arrives there, and it was really sweet. I had the occasion to speak with him recently, and I asked him about what was it like, you, a third division player from the kind of the back country of Sardinia, when you met Maradona the first time. And this is what he said. You know, he was my my idol, my my the person I was looking up to. And uh, so I said to myself, uh, try to not to say anything stupid. Try to not to do anything stupid. So I meet with him and I, and I stayed like a doll, saying nothing. And in the end, I, you know, I was stupid. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it was great because, uh, because Diego was very good since the beginning. And he made me feel uh, very welcome. I start learning from him and it was uh, an amazing experience. It's a cornerstone of the Zola legend that he then learns his trade at the feet of Maradona. And that they have all these competitions at the end of training. Maradona, who wasn't by any means a fan of training, but would stay, according to the stories, for hours, yeah. practicing 
wrong-footed penalties, practicing free kicks with his young apprentice. He was also helped, I think, in that by the fact that, pretty sure it was all his first season, Maradona liked to return late from holidays because he'd go fishing for Dorados in, uh, in Argentina. And there was one year where he came back way late, probably overweight, but Zola had played in preseason. And they're like, hey, look, he's doing a number of the things that Diego does. Maybe not as well, maybe not as often, but that's really when the Zola phenomenon mm. took off. He even looks, when you, when you see his goals, he looks like Maradona. He's short, he's got the number 10 jersey He had often. big hair back then. He had then. the big hair, yeah. Well, and also... There's the game in which he um, scores against Atalanta, his first goal mm. in, in Serie A, um, which is a great goal. Wonderful first touch um, to get it out of his feet and away from the defender and then curls it into the top corner. And you see him then come off and Maradona replaces him. And yeah, there are similarities, but this is, I think, the time in Maradona's career where he's entered the dark phase. He's looking overweight. His shirt is, is out. He looks puffy let's say. And um, in some respects, 89-90, yes, it was the last time that Napoli won the Scudetto, but particularly in the beginning, Zola had to not carry that team, but certainly have more influence than you would, more responsibility Mm. than you would usually put on a new player who's just come from the third division. But yeah, in terms of goals, you look at some of the free kicks that Zola was scoring, particularly in that context where that is something that you really associated with, with Maradona, you know, some of the trajectories that you see, you know. There's a clip, I think it's from last year, from Soccer AM, where he shows Jimmy Bullard how he hits free kicks. I idea. My idea was uh, basically to have a look at the wall. I knew that the third man from the left he was my target to okay, put the ball on, the on top. The yes, definitely. And then uh, all I needed to know that I, I hit the ball. My kind of technique was to split the ball in four. Nice. Uh, four parts. Like a quarter. Yeah. Quartered it. Yeah, yeah. correct. And uh, to hit the right one at the bottom. Just two goals in the first season when Napoli win the title, the only league title that Zola wins in his career. The second of those goals, a really important one, actually, that enabled them to keep European champions Milan at arm's length. And then the following season, it is that Maradona has to scarper after failing a drugs test. And Marazola now, as he's known, inherits that number 10 jersey definitively. I think Zola set up uh, Maradona's final goal Did he? as well. Did he? Napoli, yeah. But then Claudio Ranieri comes in and he's in a situation where basically there's no money left at the club. And it's very obvious there's no money left at the club. And Ranieri is like every manager dealing with Ferlino's made promises. Oh, we're going to sign him, sign that. But you don't need to worry. Look, we have Zola. And Ranieri's like, okay, that's great. But Maradona has gone and I need a striker. I need this and that. Like, But Zola's here. And he's basically told to build the team around him and, and whatever else. But you can already tell, like, they've started to kind of demobilize, and it's a process that would go on for a while, and then years later we would find out just how bad the debt situation was and everything else. I think your pal Arsene Wenger might call it financial doping. Um, <laughs> uh, and ultimately would lead to, to a bankruptcy, of course. Absolutely. Well, it's not long before Zola himself is on the move. But on the Ranieri, they finished fourth, which was... I'd say they pretty, still had players. I mean, they still Careca in those days. Cannavaro. Yeah, I think Fonseca, Daniele Fonseca mm-hmm. was still there. Yeah. yeah. So it was a team, but it soon was not to be. Sure. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. 
1993 and while Yotto today stormed the Classifica with, appropriately enough, Seo Mito, Zola is brought by Callisto Tanzi's Palmer, who are fresh from winning the Cup Winners' Cup, of course. From one bankruptcy to another. Yeah. <laughs> one future bankruptcy. Well, yeah, but it's not too bad. Ken Bates. He Extraordinary. <laughs> What a track record. <laughs> but back in those days, nobody thought about anything to, like to that. To <laughs> <laughs> Just to complete the circle. Wow. It's true. We'll, we'll talk about Chilino later on. What a time, though. Palmer, Nevio Scala, fresh off a tractor, in charge of this wonderful, innocent, freewheeling team. Tino Asprilia up front alongside Gianfranco Zola. Wonderful lineup of players there and and what Gianfranco reckons is his best season ever which was his second campaign with the um, Parmigiani in 94-95 when they came second they won the UEFA Cup against Juventus 19 goals that year in, in Serie A which in, in those days pretty elevated stuff yeah they what reached the Coppa Italia semi-final this was this was this the year when they pretty much reached all the finals and played Juventus and beat yeah. them in one and Juventus beat them in the other but again, I think during this period, oh, was it his second season at Palmer where he gets into double figures again and half of them are free kicks. Um, and there's one against Sampdoria, which recommend listeners look out for because I don't know whether it's just because the shot is from behind the goal, the camera shot, um, but you see it go into the into the smallest place in the stanchion, you know, where the, the upright, the, the sette, as they, as they call it in Italy. Oh! L'incrocio. Maradona scored a goal like that, except he did it at the near post. But of course, that was Maradona. Yeah. So at this point, I mean, he's about as good a player as you can find in Syria. Yeah, and this would sort of mark what was probably his misfortune on a national team level, is that he's born two years after Roberto Mancini and two years before Roberto Baggio. And... At the risk of sounding conspiratorial, but others have, have, have made this point, he kind of runs into a situation where he's up against two real genuine golden boys, you know, both of whom, I mean, Roberto Baggio at 16 was scoring like 25 goals in the third division and stuff. Mancini, I'm sure we've covered before, you know, he was already known in football circles at 13 or 14, scoring nine goals in Serie A at, at the age of 16. Certainly Baggio playing for Juventus, bigger club. Mancini was still a Samp, but he had the whole legacy of the under-21. And I think a lot of people looked at this and said, okay, well, all right, little man, wait your turn. You know, plus Mancini, a strong personality. Baggio less so, but Juventus very powerful. And plus, I don't want to denigrate them, but I mean, plus these guys were outstanding footballers as well. And then I think set into motion something where I certainly get the sense in Italy he was always thought of as a nice guy, but not on a par with the other two. Yeah, I mean... Well, certainly not with Roberto Baggio. It was incredible. I mean, at time of incredible competition, and of course he had a national team manager through those those particular years who was very much wedded to a strict 4-4-2 and yeah. didn't really regard the number 10 or that kind of a... And this what, is what brings the end to his career at Parma because right. Saki's disciple, Carlo Ancelotti, comes in and moves Zola out onto the wing instead of either as a second striker or as a 10. He's unsuited to that role. And Ancelotti famously rejects the opportunity to sign Roberto Baggio for Parma as well on the same grounds. And Carlo causes his greatest regret, no, letting Zola go. Oh, yeah. He's, he always talks, he's always asked about it. He always talks about it. But, I mean, I think James made, it, made a great point. At that time, Italian football was still fundamentally defend and counter. So you had space for 
a fantasista means a punta for a guy in the hole, giving him the freedom. But you had space for one of them. So with the more traditional managers, I mean, this is vis-a-vis the national team, it would just be anathema to play Baggio and Zoller, Baggio and Mancini together. With a guy like Saki or Nidan Ancelotti, who were far more attacking and progressive, the problem was you needed 4-4-2, you needed people who made defensive runs, you needed certain levels of discipline and movement, and you couldn't accommodate players like that. And if you'd run into Ancelotti at a different stage in each other's career, I mean, they're roughly the same age, so it wouldn't have happened, but I think it would have all been very, very different. Zola può andare all'uno contro uno, entra in area di rigore, serie di finte, viene spostato ancora, poi rientra. E stavolta l'arbitro punisce il suo intervento e viene espulso. E pure questa ci voleva, no? Espulsione per Zola. Bruno Pitzel there, voicing the horror of a nation as Gianfranco Zola sees his World Cup end after eight minutes. This is USA 94. The game is against Nigeria. Baggio saves the day and, and, and Italy roll on towards the final. But it's one of the, I guess, the three things that popularly define Zola's less than rewarding time with the Azuri. He only had 35 caps. That was one of them, that, that brief appearance at USA 94. Of course, there was a missed penalty against Germany, which cost Italy their place in Euro 96. But he did also score that goal against England at Wembley. Right, which was in a qualifier, so... Yeah, but, yeah, but it was... But I mean, it was special. a 1-0 win. The, the one in Euro 96 Destroying actually... Destroying Sol Campbell. ...was the, the, <laughs> the missing... It didn't cost Italy their place in Euro 96. It cost them their place in the knockout round. In the knockout round, Because obviously right, yeah. that was in the group stage. Yeah. The, the thing about this... and. Brief aside, I know there's a lot of like hipstery guys who are like, oh no, VAR, what's this? In that game, the referee in that the game. The Nigeria one. In the Nigeria game. Yeah. The referee was a Mexican guy named Brizio Carter, who was considered to be one of the best referees in the world. And I think he actually officiated a final as well of a major tournament. Maybe even it was a 94 one. He obviously got this entirely wrong. And how you can be against VAR, at least for extreme decisions like this. He didn't get them wrong because he's bad or he's mean or he doesn't like Zola or he's part Nigerian, which I'm pretty sure he isn't. He got it wrong because he didn't see it properly and he was fooled by by, by the way Zola went in, by the way the guy went down, whatever. I mean, come on now. And you heard the sadness in in Pizzo's voice there. Um, Zola sinking to the turf, his head in his hands. I mean, it was was what, minutes after he came on. Yeah, eight minutes is all he had at that World Cup. But the thing I find extraordinary, and I think this really marked him, was, I don't want to fast forward, but after he went to Chelsea, and around the time that he came back, actually, and scored, just before he scored that goal at Wembley, I remember speaking to Italian colleagues about, about Zola, and could he ever come back and, and contribute to the national team, and, you know, or, or, or was this just going to be a one-off? And they use this term for Zola, and I kind of like, yeah, he's somebody everybody likes, and we have a lot of sympathy for him, but he's fundamentally uno sfigato. Sfigato is, is a word that basically means the guy who's kind of like downtrodden and unlucky and cursed. cursed. <laughs> yeah, strange, strange way to look at him, though. In, but it was all based on that side. 1994 thing. Right. You know, the image of him was him, like, there's this little guy, like, with his head down and kind of like, you know, uh, the, 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 the also, destined he, to always lose. He didn't score, I think. He made his debut for the national team in 91. He didn't score with them until 95. Wow. Um, and then he scored, I think, in three internationals in a row. Mm. But as Gab says, there's the 94 sending off, 96 miss. He's not picked for 98, even though 
he came on and essentially won the the was it the Copernus Cup final for for Chelsea mm. against Stuttgart, where he scores after 17 seconds coming on. Okay, the basis was he'd had some fitness issues. I think he'd had some muscle problems, and he'd, he the reason why he came off the bench was because he wasn't fit enough to start. But again, you wonder how much. <laughs> but, but that's the old Italian thing, right? Mm. So Del Piero had him come onto the scene, had a you know tremendous season until he obviously got injured again just before the World Cup because that's how he rolls. And you had Roberto Baggio who was scoring all those goals in garbage time for, for was he Bologna or Brescia or wherever, where, out in the provinces, right? Yeah. So obviously you couldn't say no to Baggio. And like, because there's an unwritten Italian rule in a 23-man squad, you can't have more than two skill players, then it's sorry Gianfranco. And we all know if Mancini had been in charge back then, this wouldn't have happened, right? I mean, the, the times have changed and there's a whole generation of very talented attacking Italian players, but we didn't quite fit the mold, who were penalized throughout the insanity was the 90s. You could maybe oh. add Beppe Signori into that, that list as well. You really like Beppe Signori. I love Beppe Signori. <laughs> but yeah, Gab makes a good point in that those guys who are overlooked are now the ones calling the shots. Yeah, true. <laughs> Listen, let's, let's head back, though, to Gianfranco Zola in Parma in the kind of early, mid-90s, because next up, one of the more remarkable bits of his career in Italy, uh, there in Sober Parma, something almost out of Romanzo Criminale. This is a pretty extraordinary story, and what's also quite amazing about it is the fact that it just hasn't been reported. A guy called Fabrizio Maiello, who was a Primavera player, a youth team player at Monza, has an injury at 17, and then afterwards, basically to, as he puts it, substitute the adrenaline that he had on field, takes up a life of crime and cocaine. He has jail time, he has psychological problems. He, he spends time in prison in, in Bologna with none other than Marcello Colafigli, the uh, buffalo of the Banda della Magliana, the infamous Roman gang uh, mm. rendered on screen in Romanzo Criminale, James. Yeah, without, without doubt. Uh, Libanese and, uh, and, and co, yeah. So basically, he decides to kidnap Gianfranco Zola to hold Callisto Tanzi to ransom. And while out on parole, basically, he, he just does one. He, he, he goes on the lam and gets a, a, a group together. And the plan is that they're going to go with two cars. One of them is going to T-bone Gianfranco Zola's car, force him to stop, stick him in theirs, and then send a ransom note to Callisto Tanzi. Because back then, everyone thought Tanzi might have some money. I mean, maybe we would have found out <laughs> when, when, when Tanzi couldn't pay the ransom money, we would have known. But the, the, the account of what happens then, this is from, uh, from Maiello's uh, own words. Is really Zola-esque. Basically, he says, we were following him when he stops at a petrol station. So we stopped as well. We wanted to wait for him. Gianfranco, however, comes up to us smiling and says, do you want an autograph? In that moment, I thought, but what am I doing? No, no, let's leave this, says Maiello. <laughs> we, we exchanged a few words. I said I was a bit of a Napoli fan. And, he's, and, and, I, and then I asked him for an autograph, presumably while the other, the, other, the other band members are going, what is going on at this point? Uh, after this, Zola gets back in his car, possibly having seen one of Maiello's tattoos that alerts him to the fact that he might not be one of the good guys, and drives off. And the gang say, "All right, now let's take him." And Zamaela says, "No, we're, we're not. We're not doing it." And, and he knew he was being followed. He did. Uh, he just genuinely thought that he's being followed because they're autograph seekers and they're too shy. And I don't, you know, I like to believe that. But you know what? Given that Zola is a really bright guy, it may also be he's like, "All right." It's pretty suspicious. So just to be safe, public pace, CCTV, petrol cameras, I go up and talk to them. They're immortalized forever so that, you know, 
That's nice. a pretty big deterrent. Yeah. Mm. Excellent. Excellent. Back then, he probably didn't have a, a hands-free mobile phone in 1994. No. He probably had so. the start attack. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone had the start attack in '94. I well, didn't. I was so jealous. Was that one of those like flip? <laughs> it was phone? a Motorola one with the flip thing. It was called the start attack. And if you went to a training ground without the start attack, <laughs> you weren't getting in. Se fuori gioco. Anyway, so as you mentioned, uh, those glorious years in Parma come to an end with the arrival of Carlo Ancelotti, who wants four four two, and the two are very much Chiesa and Crespo. Not uh, a bad strike partnership. No, I mean not bad. But as you say, Zola's out on the wing and it's not long before clubs around the place, around Europe, get wind of his disgruntlement. Chelsea make a bid and the rest is Premier League history. Very much a European feel about Chelsea with Zola. Lovely footwork from him. He dances through! And Manchester United were totally bewildered by Gianfranco Zola. Everyone knows about the Chelsea years. What about how he left? So... Zola obviously arrived back when Chelsea were, were spending big, but if you recall around sort of the 2001 mark, all of a sudden there was no money left for Mr. Claudio Ranieri, who was then the manager. It was a famous year where they didn't sign anybody except for the lovable Kike de Lucas and, and stuff like that. And Zola's contract was coming to an end. So they got him a new deal, which was just heavily incentive-laden with the understanding that oh, as soon as we have money, we'll, we'll go and we'll, we'll, we'll sort this. So he performed really, really well. I think either 01, 02, or he was the player of the year, or 02, or 03. Mm, 203, I think. And then, you know, his contract is winding down again, and the club, and he's like, all right, well, can we revisit this so that, you know, I'm all for the incentives, but, you know, I'm playing pretty well. And, <laughs> and the club are like, sorry. We don't have any money. Like they had an accountant come in who was basically running the club. I mean, and so our pal Massimo Cellino over in Cagliari has a brilliant idea. He's like, wait a minute, like Salah's not making any money. Let's bring him home. I know he's older. It'll be a great coup. We'll take him back to Cagliari. So he reaches out to Zola and says, hey, you know, can you come? We can only pay you this much. I know it's not what you were making, anything like that. And Zola commits. That's right. No doubt Lord by Sweet Sounds of Eros Ramazzotti, who was number one in the Italian charts that summer, 2003. Gianfranco decided, after seven years, to return to the Italian game, to finish his career, effectively, back in Sardinia, at Cagliari, who at the time were down in Serie B. Unbeknownst to him, though, changes were happening back in London. Unbeknownst to him, a man named Roman Abramovich decides to go and buy Chelsea. And one of the first things Abramovich does is he goes to, this is, I mean, I think ultimately the, the deal got completed in late June. And he goes to Claudio Ranieri and says, hey, all right, I'm here. Let's invest in the team. Ranieri says, listen, the very first thing you need to do, because the transfer market doesn't officially open until July 1st, is you need to go to Zola, give him a new deal, and get him to stay. And Abramovich's people say, sure, no problem. And they go to him, and Zola's like, yeah, I know, but I gave my word to Cagliari. And he's like, okay, no problem. This is what we'll pay you. Okay, but I gave my word to Cagliari. Um, I reached a point where 
Abramovich actually rang up Chilino and well, I'm sure it wasn't Abramovich himself since he doesn't actually speak. But, yeah, there's this myth that, but it's true, is it, that he actually it's offered to buy... It's true that he spoke to Chilino. About buying Cagliari? <laughs> That's what Chilino says. Okay. Now, I want to believe Chilino, you don't want to believe Chilino. I wasn't in on, in on the phone call. But he certainly spoke to Chilino and says, listen, I'll make it worth your while uh, if you let him say. And Chilino's like, well, it's up to him. And Gianfranco, by that point, had, you know, he was in the mindset given my word. I'm sure if Abramovich had given Chilino 10 million, mm. especially if it was in cash and unmarked bills, Chilino would have said, no, Zola, go away. We don't want you anymore. You know, you stink. You right. stay at Chelsea. We need this money to build but, the stadium. Yeah, exactly. Out of Meccano pieces. <laughs> but by well. that point, it was, it, was, it was too far gone and, you know, he turned his back and, you know, it's easy to, to go and, and, and minimize this because obviously all these people are highly paid footballers. But Jeff Hanko, I think, was just turned 37 yep. at the mm. time. He was moving down to Serie B. Mm. His family were, were settled in London. I mean, his kids had grown up here. This was home. Cagliari wasn't even, yeah, it's in Sardinia, but that's not where he's from, right? He's from a place that's very different from Cagliari, which is, you know, a normal modern city. But he'd given his word. Right. Indeed so. He returns to Italy in the, the second division where he helps a Cagliari win promotion. 14 yeah. goals in yeah. After four years as well. It wasn't like they'd mm. just gone down and were bouncing back. They'd been stuck in a rut. And if you look at Serie B in that time, some of the teams that were down there, I mean, Napoli never recovered from the financial crisis that clearly Zola wrought on every club that he joined. Um, but there was Genoa, there was Palermo with Luca Toni, and they would, um, that was the year Palermo went up and... I think won the league on, on goal difference. Atalanta, Torino, Verona, Fiorentina, wow. Catania. The uh, top of the scoring charts, you mentioned that um, Zola scored 14. Tony with 30. Lucarelli and Igor Protti, who were wow. t up top together for Livorno with 29 and 25 goals. Milito. Diego uh, Milito. With, with Diego Milito with, mm. with 12 goals for Genoa. Um, so pretty damn competitive second division um, back in those days. It was... I think Giampiero Ventura was coach to begin with. I do have to mention this guy. <laughs> Come on, He's man. back in Serie B. Seriously. Working for his bro, Latito, at Salernitana. And then Eddie Reja. Right. Now yeah, managing Albania, up. of course. Yes. Mm. Uh, so they do come up. So Zola gets to have his final season in Serie A with some tremendous moments, two of which come, nicely enough, against Juventus. In, I think it was December, there's a huge header... Zola against Zabina. Zola's marked by two players, essentially. Lillian Turam and Jonathan Zabina, who's no Lillian Turam, but at least has a certain height advantage. He over. would fight Zlatan later in his career. Also true. Yeah. But anyway, the three of them are there for a, as, a, as a cross comes in. Zola goes up, but the towering header equalises. Beats Buffon. Buffon. Beats Buffon as well. And then again against Juventus, his final game, which came away to La Signora. It was a 4-2 defeat for Cagliari, but Zola scored both goals and the Sardinians end up finishing 12th that year, which was, which was great. And that was that for a player who, who won Hearts, won an OBE, won the title of Chelsea's best ever player. Yeah, Tried his hand at coaching. West Ham, Watford. He had the body cop thing going on with Gigi Casiraghi for a while. Didn't yeah, he? well, that's where it started. Under twenty ones. Gigi Casiraghi, who we do have to do a Golazzo on mm. one day uh, at the under twenty ones. He had a spell at Chilino's Cagliari as manager, 
which went about he as gave, well as you'd expect um, in three Barella his debut. Did he in those three months in charge? Yeah. Really? Yeah. He replaced Zeman, I think, no? He did, yeah. and then Zeman replaced him. <laughs> Classic <laughs> calorie. <laughs> he then went to Al Arabi in Qatar. He had a disastrous stint at Birmingham City after replacing Gary Rowett there. He's recently been mentioned in the frame for the Sheffield Wednesday uh, job, which went to Gary Monk and may soon be mentioned for the Sheffield Wednesday job again. Who knows? And yeah, I now. Just, I wanted to stress as a yep. manager, which a lot of people seem to not have noticed this. Um, the year that he was at West Ham, he took over from Kirbishley. This was after the mad Icelandic guy, Magnus Magnuson, whatever his name was. This was still under their ownership. Obviously, the Iceland crisis, there was no money. They literally had to sell everybody who wasn't physically <laughs> so, nailed down so, so to, to the club. Again. Right? No, no, no. <laughs> but I mean, um, and he worked with, uh, with Gianluca Nani, who was the, the director of football. Yeah. And that season, they what finished. The team of Nani, basically. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you appreciate that. But that season, they finished mid-table, which was absolutely remarkable when you look at the fact they literally, because they'd spent a ton of money. They had all these huge wages, Bellamy, whatever. They just sold everybody, replaced them with guys like Ilunga and whatever else. So it was actually tremendous, a tremendous result. And then the following year, finally West Ham gets sold. And in fact, your old pal, Massimo Cellino, remember, he tried to buy West ah, Ham yeah. uh, as well. And then he said the first thing he was going to do was sack Zola, no? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> he didn't buy the club, but the pornographers bought the club instead, right? <laughs> yeah, the Dildo Brothers. The, dil <laughs> the, the, the Dildo Daves. And the last six months of the season, it was all, he was pretty much dead man walking, but they still, they still stayed up. When he resurfaced after that, obviously he was at Watford where with the second lowest budget in the championship, they actually got into the playoffs. I think they lost the championship final, mm. if I'm not mistaken. And obviously they had a spell as Maurizio Sarri's number two, which again, just to, I know this is recent history, but just to knock this on the head, he, I don't think he knew Sarri at all until then. He was just kind of put there because Sarri's a bit odd, he speaks Italian. And he had this experience, and, and in typical Zola fashion, with really great humility, said, I'm, I'm here to learn from, from Saudi. I'll help any way I can. And it's recent history. We know the conclusions. But, you know, they did finish third and win the Europa League. Well, right now he's uh, taking a break from management and making a mean ice cream because he, along with his partner, Roberto Di Matteo, own a chain of ice cream shops. I must admit. Unico. Yeah, I or didn't realise it was Or were we not allowed to, to mention them? No, we can. Go, I can vouch they... for how good they are because I go to Unico quite so a lot. Do the one at Notting Hill Gate? I think they do have one. The one That's I go good. to is not there. Right. But um, it's a bit posh. Really. I've spoken to <laughs> Jan Fraga before about his ice cream thing and thought it was just a guy. But his father actually sold ice creams, Ignacio Zola, back in the day. So if you're if you're passing Notting Hill Gate or St John's Wood or any of the fine locations and you fancy a, a oh, refreshing you've got even ice cream, even posher one in St John's Wood, do you? There is one in St John's Wood. Oh, yeah. right. Is it near the Ivy? By. Sorry. Is it near the Ivy on the High Street? The Ivy Cafe. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's not far. Yeah. yeah. Right. The Ivy's everywhere these days. Mm. No one's more disappointed Can't. about that than Raphael Honigstein. <laughs> I'm sorry for that. <laughs> any final thoughts then on a man who's giving us some wonderful ice cream and some even better moments on the football field. And maybe Gab suggests hasn't had a fair crack of the whip as a manager, although I think I'm not sure that many supporters would welcome him necessarily turning up at their sides. James? Magic Box? Yes. His nickname at Chelsea? What? I mean, again, 
just one of the most for me it's a quite a random nickname it's no? a really bizarre nickname yeah it sounds like it's been put through google translate and come out <laughs> as magic box yeah it was funny because i was obviously covering um him at the time and all of a sudden like you know editors of my paper nearly would be like oh yeah do us a story there's on this magic box thing and and there was like i mean it was the stuff they found interesting it was like the, your Italian paper? Yes, like like Asda or, or some other like cheapo, crappy supermarket would come out and be like, oh, look, we have the Zola pizza. That was like, Tesco. And I was like, it was how Tesco's uh, <laughs> Zola's <laughs> Italian pizza. Yeah, and I was thinking like, the dude is Sardinian. He's not, he's got nothing to do with pizza. Why can't it be Zola's genuine Seadas, for example? Right. <laughs> or Maloredus. <laughs> no, seriously, this, yeah. this type of cultural appropriation has to end, James. <laughs> Anyway, final thoughts. That <laughs> brings us to the end of this uh, Golazzo special on Gianfranco Zola. Many thanks, Gabrielli, for being with us today. My pleasure. And getting heated just at the end because we were, we we're missing a little bit of a rant somewhere along the way. There's so little to get upset about with Gianfranco Zola. <laughs> it really isn't. Uh, and then thank you too, James Horncastle. Pleasure, James. We will return soon with another Golazzo. Make sure you join us then, listener. For now, from all of us here, it's a Rio Dirty. You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production, and for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audio Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand.